Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Or shall we pray as we come to God's word? Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for the gift of your most precious, most holy word, which is a light to our feet and a lamp to our path. We thank you that by your words we are warned, that in keeping them there's great reward. And uh, we just come before you now and ask for your special help as we seek to understand your words and apply them to our lives and to the culture around us. Please overrule, Lord, in all that I say. I pray that anything that's from you uh, would find a home in willing hearts and bring transformation, um, greater conformity to the likeness of Christ. Uh, Lord, anything that's not of you, I pray it wouldn't be said. And if it is, I just pray it would be ignored and blown away as chaff. Um, but we lift this time to you and we pray that you would bless us and help us and minister to us at whatever level we need as we consider this issue this morning. And we pray this for your glory's sake and in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. One in three women in the UK uh, has at least one abortion in her lifetime. One in three. And of course, for every post-abortive mother, there is a post-abortive father as well. So as I set out to engage this, uh, I just want to reiterate really what we spoke about just before, which is that this isn't just a hot tip topic, is it? For, for some of us, perhaps, even in this room, it's a deeply personal issue. Um, in a meeting of this size, no doubt there'll be people who've, had, who've got friends or uh, sisters, mothers, um, children, friends, neighbors, colleagues who've had abortions themselves. And uh, it's quite likely, quite possible, the people in this room who, who themselves have had abortions. And so I just want to um, acknowledge you if that's, if that's you, if that's part of your story. 
And uh, I want to reiterate that everything we're going to be saying this morning is within the reach of the grace of God. Nothing is beyond that. Um, many of the women we speak with who've had abortions say that they felt at the time they had no choice. You know, it's called pro-choice, isn't it? But we find many women say they had no choice. They, they felt as though they were not given a choice by those around them, be that the doctors, their partners, their parents. Everyone uh, at the time was saying this is the answer. Um, and so it can be an incredibly complicated and, and painful issue. And, and, and on top of that, many people find themselves totally unable to speak with anyone about their abortion, even in the church, because in the church even, often it's a, a no-go area, a taboo subject. And so people are left carrying the, the pain, the guilt, the shame, the regret of this even for decades. I've spoken with many people who said, you're the first person I've told about this, and it happened 40 years ago. And that pains me because, of course, it misrepresents the gospel. It suggests that the gospel isn't big enough to handle this issue. And, of course, that's not true. The good news of Jesus is that there is forgiveness and a fresh start and life to the full for anyone who simply turns and puts their trust in Christ, turns away from their past, from living for self and for other things, and enthrones Christ as Lord and Savior. And there's no small print there, no qualifications. Jesus never turned anyone away who came to him. And so as we look at this this, this morning, let's just remind ourselves again and again that the cross is big enough for this. And uh, deep and dark though this issue is, the cross is deeper and more powerful still. So we're going to be considering what the whole of Scripture has to say about abortion. Um, I'm not going to be preaching through every single verse of the passage we read out, as I normally would. Um, and that's because an issue like abortion requires head-on treatment. And I hope by the end of this presentation, you'll, you'll see why I say that. It, that there's, there's too much going on in our culture and too much um, of, of a, a deceptive narrative going on for us to be able to deal with it just as an aside from time to time. Yeah, that's, the, that's, the, that's why uh, we're looking at it head on. But we're going to be using this passage as a springboard for considering what all the Scripture has to say. And so we're going to start with this crucial question, uh, which the expert in the law raises here um, in uh, the beginning of our passage. Um, or, sorry, um, partway through our passage. Um, who is my neighbor? He raises the question disingenuously, but it's a good question nonetheless. Who is my neighbor? It's a good question because more than once, Jesus affirms as a, an adequate summary of the entire law of God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the law of God, says Jesus, more than once. So if we would be serious about discovering what it means to live in God's way, in God's world, we have to grapple with this question, who is my neighbor? Who is it to whom I owe this special self-sacrificial love? Who is it in my culture today, in my neighborhood, right now? Who is it who is in need of my self-sacrificial love? Who is my neighbor? Well, um, I had intended to um, show you some things on a screen today. I'm not going to be doing that because, uh, to cut a long story short, I failed to find a projector that worked. Um, so what we're actually going to do is I'm going to hand out some things. And if you don't mind just running with me, I'm going to ask you to turn a certain page at a certain time. 
talk you through it, and then later on, the rest. There are some graphic images on some later pages, just to warn you, but we'll get to that, and I'll explain why I've brought those uh, to you, and uh, there'll be an opportunity to look at those later on. I wonder if someone would kindly just hand these around. Is that okay? If someone who's got a hand, thank you. So when you get this, if you don't mind just, just opening the first page like this, what you'll see um, is a series of, of detailed photographic pictures of life in the womb at early stages. We're thinking about who is my neighbor, okay? And I want to show you and talk you through who our neighbor is um, before going any further. If you want to see video footage of life in the womb in, in the most incredible detail, you can go to ehd.org. That's the Endowment for Human Development. It shows video footage. There's a, literally a camera in the womb looking at the unborn child at very early stages. Let me just highlight a few moments of development for you. At three weeks from fertilization, okay, three weeks and one day, the unborn's heartbeat begins. It's actually the first organ that really gets going is the heart from three weeks. Now, that's before many ladies would even know that they're pregnant. Okay, three weeks from fertilization. At eight weeks, you can tell by observing the unborn child, which at that stage is just three centimeters or so from sort of top to bottom. By observing the unborn child, you can tell if the baby is right-handed or left-handed from their movements. Okay, so most um, babies will show right-hand dominance, but others left, and that, that stays true for the rest of their Lives at 10 weeks, there's a fingerprint, an utterly unique fingerprint. No one in the history of the world has had the same one before. And at about 22 weeks or so nowadays in this country, that's the earliest we've had a baby be born and survive with intensive um, neonatal care, but we've had babies survive from about 22 weeks now. Now, the abortion limit in the UK is 24 weeks. Uh, for any reason or no reason, um, and then up till birth, if there's thought to be any kind of abnormality or condition. That could be something severe and life-limiting. It could be something quite trivial, such as cleft palate, which essentially is an aesthetic issue. But that's just something of the uh, development of the unborn child. It's incredibly sophisticated. By about 12 weeks, all the organs that you and I have, 90% of them, uh, are already there. They just need a bit more time to develop and grow. That's something about sophistication of life in the womb. But we need to be a bit more precise. We need to be clear on when life actually begins. When does life begin? Well, every medical textbook agrees that life begins at fertilization. That's true of, of, um, of squirrels. It's true of cows. It's true of all sorts of animals. It's not just about human life. Life begins at fertilization. That's a biological fact. Human life begins at fertilization. From that moment, what you have in the case of uh, humans, of course, is that humans beget humans. We reproduce according to our kinds. Okay, so three distinctives for you to be aware of. It's human in terms of species. It's alive as opposed to dead. And there are only two options. Okay, we can, we can tell it's alive because it's growing, it's developing, it's respiring. And you can see video footage of that or even on an ultrasound, you can see it moving around. So it's human, it's alive, and it's an individual. The DNA that's formed at fertilization is utterly unique. It's different from the father's. It's different from the mother's. 
And this is really important because what that proves to us scientifically is that the unborn is not a part of the mother. You might have heard that kind of language being used. It's, it's her body. It's part of the mother. It's not part of the mother. It's inside the mother. But biologically, it's totally distinct. The DNA is different. So what we're talking about here is not like an organ, part of the mother. It's offspring, a whole new person. Okay, it's a living human being. And what I'm saying at this stage, to be clear, of course, is not a value statement. I'm not giving you my opinion. I'm just stating biological facts. And in fact, they're uncontested. Every medical textbook agrees with what I'm saying. And this is what modern medical science has concluded. But of course, it's, it's nothing new, in a sense, for us. Because for thousands of years, we've known from Scripture that life begins at conception. Um, I'm going to be making a few references. You can turn there or note them down. But Psalm 51, verse 5, the psalmist David says, I was sinful from the moment my mother conceived me. Conceived me. He didn't use a term like conceived a bunch of cells which later turned into me or out of which I later emerged. No, he says me. And he said he was sinful from that moment. So he was, he was a morally responsible being from conception. An organ, of course, can't be morally responsible on its own. A biological process on its own can't be a sinner. Only a person can be a sinner. So it's very clear from that passage that what we have is life, and if you want to use the term personhood, from conception. Now, it's not just a kind of proof text approach that we depend upon, but in fact, the, one of the most central doctrines of the Christian faith, the doctrine of the incarnation, states very clearly that Jesus was not born of the Holy Spirit. His birth was actually natural. There was no miracle at his birth. It was his conception that was miraculous. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. That's when his earthly life began. And that's a key part of the doctrine of the incarnation, that Jesus experienced all of earthly life from conception. Hebrews 2 tells us he had to be made like us in every way. And, and so this idea that uh, God the Son's earthly life began at some point after conception is a heresy that's been thoroughly debunked once and for all. So if Jesus' earthly life began at conception, we can be absolutely, absolutely clear that human life in general begins at conception. So that's when human life begins. But when does human life begin to matter? When does human life matter? Um, the, the science I've been showing you has really uh, caught up, as it were, on the abortion industry and its advocates. They can't deny that what's in the womb is a, a human life. It's just undeniable. We've got video footage of life in all its sophistication in the womb. And so increasingly what we're hearing at the sort of high end of pro-abortion um, propaganda is that uh, they'll say things like this, and, and this is a, a quote from Anne Faraday, who's just retired as the CEO of BPAS, the main abortion provider in the UK, the so-called British Pregnancy Advisory Service. Uh, I can tell you that they don't give much advice, and they're much more interested in abortion than pregnancy, but that's what they call themselves. And she will say, look, I can acknowledge there's a life in there, and that's a wonderful thing in its own way. But for me, the question really is, when does that life begin to matter? Or who decides? Who decides how that life is valued? Now, when you think about what she's saying there, it's quite chilling because what she's saying is, I can acknowledge it's a human life. The question is really, which humans matter and which ones don't? Which ones get to live and which ones have to die? 
And uh, in doing so, Anne Ferreira places herself in a problematic tradition of people who've decided that certain people groups aren't as valuable as other people groups and can be treated differently. Now, what you'll notice here is that Anne Faraday, what she's saying in, in that instance, is not a scientific statement talking about the unborn's value. That's not something you can prove in the lab. She's making a value statement. It's a, it's a moral statement, a philosophical statement. You could even say that's her religion. That's her religious commitment. And her belief is that a, a woman can have an abortion up until birth for any reason or no reason. She thinks it should just be absolutely the woman's choice because she is sovereign. And so, of course, it's left up to every woman to decide for themselves or to be coerced from the outside, of course, um, to have an abortion for any or no reason. What's our response as Christians to this? When does life begin to matter to us? What does God think? When does life begin to matter in God's eyes? Well, the answer to that is very simple, actually. Human life begins to matter when human life begins. Because right from fertilization, as soon as a new human life has been created, we know from Scripture that we're created in the image of God. We're endowed with dignity and value by our Creator as a gift. It's not dependent on our size or our sex, our skin color, our intelligence, our um, physical strength, our genetic strength. No, every human being, regardless of age, is uniquely and equally precious in God's sight, purely by merit of being made in the image of God. And by the way, that's a uniquely Judeo-Christian worldview, and it's the foundation of what we call human rights. We didn't pluck human rights out of the air. No, it's founded on this idea, this reality, that human beings are intrinsically valuable, quite apart from what they may or may not be able to bring to the table. They're intrinsically valuable. So God's, in God's eyes, the unborn child is, is valuable because they're made in his image. And so life begins to matter when life begins. I haven't got time to go into this this, this morning, but I just want to flag some other issues that this touches on and, and is significant for. So we need to think about how this would impact on IVF, in vitro fertilization, and embryo research and things like that. We also need to think about how, as a church, we respond to the tragedy of what we call miscarriage. We need to think about how we learn to respond pastorally to miscarriage. And thirdly, we need to think about many so-called contraceptives. I say so-called because some contraceptives, although they have the term contraceptive, sometimes they don't actually act before conception. Uh, they act after the moment of fertilization. And that's true of many commonly used uh, hormonal contraceptives. I haven't got time to go into that, but I just want to flag that um, for your attention, that some of them, in fact, all hormonal contraceptives have a, a deliberately inbuilt capacity to act after fertilization if necessary as a sort of backup. We can talk more about that perhaps afterwards if you'd like to. But this is an incredibly important idea for us to grasp, that life begins at fertilization, and that's when life begins to matter. How shall we speak of the unborn? You might have heard all sorts of different terms applied to the unborn child. Uh, perhaps you've had the experience of going to a 12-week scan uh, for, for perhaps your own child, if you've had a child yourself. And uh, if you have been to a 12-week scan, no doubt you would have heard the medical professionals speak to you about your baby. And that's the, the language they use. The medical professionals use the word baby. They talk about baby's heartbeat, baby's chin, 
You can see baby waving and so on. That's the language they'll use. Uh, and uh, if you go on the NHS website, you'll see they use the word baby from as early as five weeks into the pregnancy. So there's a whole series of pages on the NHS website. You and your baby. You know, it's just walking through pregnancy. How do you look after your baby? I remember when we had our uh, younger daughter, uh, which was about three years ago now, um, there were posters up in the hospital everywhere saying, uh, you know, don't smoke during pregnancy. It harms your unborn baby. And very graphic pictures of probably a, a, a premature baby, you know, with tubes on a, on a kind of ventilator system of some kind. Uh, they speak about the unborn as a baby. That's the medically correct term to use. And of course, in everyday life, we use the word baby, don't we? If someone's pregnant, you don't say, oh, how's your blob of tissue doing? Have you, have you felt your blob of tissue kick yet? Or no one says, is your bunch of cells male or female? No, of course, we say, are you having a boy? Are you having a girl? How's baby doing? Have you felt the baby kick? And of course, the papers never speak about the royal fetus, do they? They speak about the royal baby. From the moment the news breaks, it could be as early as eight weeks, 12 weeks into the pregnancy. It's the royal baby. So that's, that's the language we generally use, we normally use. But have you noticed that something strange happens to the language when it's an unwanted baby? All the language changes. So all of a sudden, instead of hearing about the mother, we hear the word woman. Instead of hearing about the womb, it's uterus. You see what's happening there? So familiar, normal, everyday terms like mother and womb, they're medically correct, but they're interpersonal. Those terms are thrown out, and instead we have these cold, clinical, impersonal terms, like uterus. And then as for the baby, it's as if the baby doesn't exist anymore. You don't hear about the baby anymore if it's an unwanted baby. You just hear about the pregnancy. You hear about a, a decision that's to be made, a crossroads. You hear about reproductive autonomy. Terms like this, it's as if the baby isn't there anymore. Sometimes it's impossible to ignore talking about the baby because you, you, you have to um, use some kind of word to refer to the baby because you're talking about whether the baby might have Down syndrome, for example, or some other condition. They, they might be able to diagnose in the womb. And so at that point, they'll use the word fetus. Oh, it's not a baby, it's just a fetus. Yeah, fetal heartbeats, having some trouble, or there might be some fetal abnormality here. You see what's going on here? Language is being used to deliberately dehumanize the unborn child, to other them, to make out like they're not really one of us. Don't worry, it's not a baby, it's just a fetus. And friends, this is nothing new. This is the history of social subjugation repeating itself. Perhaps you can think of examples historically where people groups have been dehumanized through language, and then it's made it easier to treat them as if they really were subhuman. So in the 1930s, the 1940s, the Nazis referred to Jews as pigs, rats, vermin. And of course, it made it easier to then treat them as pests, something to be exterminated, and that's what they did. Six million of them. Or go back a bit further in the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, African people, men and women, were, were termed Negroes, and they were classified really as cargo something to be uh, traded for rum and cotton and coffee and sugar. And if, a, if a, a black man or woman lost their life on the um, middle passage, either falling overboard or 
being thrown overboard to lighten the ship, and that happened during storms. They used to throw some of the black people off the, off the ship to lighten it. That was recorded as a loss of cargo, not a loss of human life. You see what's happening here. Your language is being used to dehumanize, and then it makes it easier to treat that person inhumanely. And it's exactly what we're getting today. An entire people group, unwanted children, an entire people group is being dehumanized through language and then treated inhumanely. So what should we do with our language? How should we speak of the unborn child? Because what we say is really significant, isn't it, for, for conveying and shaping our attitudes and our behaviors. Well, when we come to Luke chapter 1, and you can glance back there if you'd like to, we, there's this fascinating um, scene where we meet Mary and Elizabeth. You can turn back with me if you like. Luke chapter 1, Mary and Elizabeth um, meet in verse 39 of Luke chapter 1. And remember, Mary has just heard the news um, through the angel that she's to conceive by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will overshadow her. She'll conceive and uh, at about that time, we read, verse 39, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. Okay, So we've got two ladies meeting, haven't we? But they're not the only players in this scene. There are two others present. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby in her womb leapt, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Why did John the Baptist leap for joy? Well, surely it was the proximity of his Savior, the one around whom his whole life and ministry would revolve. The Lord Jesus was there. Just a few days after fertilization, maybe not even implanted yet, in Mary's womb. But the babe leapt for joy. Now, the word used there in the New Testament Greek is this word, brephos, which just means babe or infant. And that's used of John in the womb as an unborn child. The interesting thing is, a chapter later in Luke chapter 2, we meet the Lord Jesus lying in a manger as a newborn baby. And he's also described with this word, brephos. He's a baby. So you see, you've got the same word used of an unborn child and a newborn child, before birth, after birth. Because, of course, birth is not when life begins, and it's not when life begins to matter. For the baby, birth is a change in location, but their nature and identity and value remains exactly the same. In God's eyes, there's no distinction. And so it seems to me we ought to follow the example of Scripture and call, quite simply, a baby a baby. Because birth is not when life begins. And circumstances do not change the nature or value of that baby. People's thoughts surrounding that baby do not change the nature or value of that baby. In God's eyes, nothing's changed. They're still image bearers. They're still precious. It's not just the, the babies of Christian parents that are image bearers or the, 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 the babies of, of people who are pro-life that are made in the image of God. No, it's every single baby, regardless of circumstances. The question is, Will we, as followers of Christ, allow image bearers in our generation to be treated as if they're subhuman? And that brings us on to the second big question. We've looked at who our neighbor is, that the unborn child is our neighbor. 
That means that that's the person, and there are others, of course, but the unborn child is that person to whom we owe this obligation of sacrificial love. And so the second big question we need to ask then is, well, what's happening to my neighbor? What trouble are they in? We, we, we read, didn't we, in Jesus' story, verse um, 30, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. He was assaulted. They took his stuff. And, and they, they treated him so badly that if you were looking at him, you wouldn't be able to tell if he was alive or dead. That's what happened to the, the man on his way down to Jericho. Those are the hands he fell into. But what about the unborn child? What's happening to them? Now, if that's a question you put to the abortion industry, you, you draw a blank, really. They, they'd say, well, it's nothing to do with the baby. This is about the woman. This is a woman's choice. This is health care. This is empowering, enabling her to make her decision. If you go onto the websites of the main abortion providers in the UK, that's BPAS and MSI, Mary Stopes International, or the NHS website says very much the same thing, and you could even do this um, today on your phone, whatever. You'll uh, find perhaps somewhere a tab that says, what actually happens in an abortion? What is the abortion procedure? You click on that. And the extent of the detail you'll, you'll get is quite interesting. Because what you'll see on those pages, or, or rather what you won't see, is any mention at all of the baby. It's as if the baby isn't there. Instead, the language that's used is, uh, this is just a termination of pregnancy, it's a quick procedure, and it makes sure that um, this pregnancy doesn't end in the birth of a baby. It's that kind of language. It's very quick, 15 minutes, we'll just remove the pregnancy, And the only way I can really objectively and effectively disabuse people of the misconception that is constantly sown by pro-abortion propaganda, by the providers themselves, by so-called descriptions of the procedure, is to give people the opportunity to see for themselves what abortion actually is. And so in a few moments, I'm going to um, invite you to take a look at these images of what the, the same unborn children on the left there uh, that we've seen growing in the womb, what they look like after the violence of abortion has been done to them. Now, just to explain before we do that, there are two basic kinds of abortion procedure in the, in the UK, surgical and medical. So what you're going to see in a moment are pictures of surgical abortion. Now, this is where, according to the stage of development, um, various metal tools are used to intentionally bring about the death of the unborn child. So it could be forceps, depending on the size, and the skull of the unborn child is crushed in order to bring uh, the child out. Um, sometimes, depending on the size, uh, the baby is literally torn limb from limb, dismembered in the womb. Uh, later on, if the baby's too big to do that, a lethal injection to the heart is applied in the womb. And the chemical used there, potassium chloride, is so painful that uh, in America, for example, um, criminals on death row will never have that applied without anesthetic applied first. And, and equally, it's illegal to use it in putting animals down in the UK, yet it's being used on unborn children without anesthetic in late-term abortion. And we know they can feel pain because at 22 weeks, you can do surgery on the unborn child in the womb for spina bifida, for example, and they use anesthetic for that. 
But weeks later, that same baby can be intentionally killed in uh, the most merciless way. I'm just going to invite you in a moment to, to turn over and look at these. And let me just explain why I'm doing this. Um, the intent here is not to shock. This is not shock tactics. Sometimes people think that we show pictures and they, they say, well, this is shock tactics. It's not shock tactics. It's reality. And the truth is the reality is shocking. What's happening to these babies is shocking. And it can be tempting to look the other way or to, to euphemize and make ourselves feel more comfortable. But the reason we encourage people to look at this if they can, is I could cite to you example after example of real-life babies who are alive today, in God's goodness, precisely because their parents saw pictures just like these, sometimes on the cusp of an abortion appointment. They were just about to go in and have that abortion, but even at that moment, they did not know what it was. No one had told them. No one had shown them the truth. And sometimes, simply seeing the truth is enough to change a mind instantly and to save a life. And that's why we urge people to look at this. So I'm going to invite you now just to open up the, the other um, page there on the right. And you can see uh, the victims of this procedure, which we call abortion. Abortion itself really is a euphemism. But these are the victims of this procedure that we call abortion. And you can see how they have been dismembered, disemboweled, crushed, um, using metal tools. And what generally happens then is that the body parts are reassembled on a table to try to make sure that nothing was left inside because that can bring about infection in the womb of the mother. So that is one major kind of, kind of um, abortion procedure that takes place in the UK. The other, which in fact is becoming increasingly common, is what's known as medical abortion. So that was surgical abortion. The other kind is medical abortion. And especially over the last couple of years with the pandemic, this has become even more common um, and the abortion industry calls it pills by post. What happens there is two pills are sent in the post to anyone who requests them. Um, there's no checking there. There's no assessment. But anyone, as long as you provide a real address and your voice sounds like the voice of a woman, they'll send you pills. Now, the first pill cuts off the supplies to the unborn child. So it essentially starves and suffocates the unborn child. This is just for first trimester. That's what it's designed for. And then the second pill taken a day or two later brings about the ejection of that unborn child. And normally by then, they're already dead. And this is happening uh, in homes now across the nation. Uh, so generally speaking, a woman will be all on her own at home. And the advice is, uh, well, you've got to deal with what comes out. You've got to deal with this baby somehow. What do we do with it? Well, the advice is, and this is what they actually say, is, is just flush it down the toilet. That is, that is what they're told to do. And so the sewers of our nation are filled with literally tens of thousands of deliberately killed innocent children. In the last um, statistics released in Scotland for abortion, uh, which were the 2020 statistics, um, we observed the highest abortion rate so far uh, on record since the 1991 regulations came in. 13,815 babies killed over 2020. We haven't got the 2021 statistics yet. Um, they may well be higher due to the pills by post. Now, to try and put some perspective there, um, 13,815 represents more than one in five babies. That is to say, for every four babies born alive in Scotland, at least one baby is killed in the womb. 
Okay, so more than one in five babies are being killed uh, in the womb. Uh, the other striking thing about the statistics is, and it's the same in England and Wales, is that 98% of all of these abortions, 98% were performed against healthy mothers and healthy babies. Okay, so there's no medical indication whatsoever. Uh, we hear a lot, don't we, about the, the so-called hard cases or the extreme cases. You know, people often say, well, what about rape? What about incest? What about life of the mother? And these are real issues, and we absolutely would not want to trivialize these things or rush past them. They deserve a response. But friends, what we're talking about there, statistically, is the exception. And we've got to stop seeing only the exception, and we have to start seeing the overwhelming rule. And the majority case is this, that abortion in the main is being used as a way to get rid of a perfectly healthy but unwanted baby conceived through consensual sex. Now, that's not just my account of it. That's what the abortion industry themselves say. So Anne Faraday again says, look, sometimes the reason we need an abortion is we didn't use contraception. Or we did use contraception and it failed. So Anne Faraday insists that this has to be a part of the birth control package. This is what enables our so-called sexual revolution. The price we've been willing to exact to pay for, as it were, our sexual revolution is the lives of innocent children. 800 of them every working day. Now, it can be difficult to get our heads around the scale of this, so I'm just going to play you a little audio clip which will help us to get something of the proportion of what we're looking at here. What you're about to hear is the sound of metal ball bearings hitting a metal tray. Each ball bearing that falls into the tray represents 1,000 British lives lost. World War One. in Northern Ireland, the Lockerbie bombing, the 7-7 attacks, and all other acts of terrorism since 1970. COVID-19 mentioned as one of the causes on the death certificate. The attack on the unborn child since 1967. That's 10 million lives since 1967 in Great Britain. 10 million lives. 
what we're talking about here is not just isolated cases of homicide. These are not random acts of killing. This is a systematic, state-sponsored, targeted killing of an entire people group. The people group is unwanted children, and to the nearest percent, 100% of them are killed in the womb. If you look at how many unwanted children are voluntarily relinquished at birth for adoption, it's less than half of 1% of the number that are intentionally killed in the womb. So as genocides go, and this is a genocide, state-sponsored genocide, it's the most effective in the history of the world because 100%, to the nearest percent, 100% are effectively exterminated. We need to try and understand what's going on here spiritually speaking. Perhaps you think of um, this culture, perhaps especially Scotland, I don't know, as a, a very secular society. And in some senses, of course, that's true. Uh, but in reality, we live in a, a highly religious society. And here are some of the gods that people today worship. Uh, the god of money, uh, the god of education or reputation, the god of career, the god of uh, sexual lifestyle, relationships, the god of self and autonomy and doing things my way. These are some of the gods that we worship today. And you know what people do for the pagan gods they worship? Well, throughout history and around the world, people have always made sacrifices for the gods that they worship to try and keep them happy, to get what they want from them, to bargain with them. And it's no different today. Um, on the altar of, of self, of autonomy, babies are being sacrificed. 800 every working day. Abortion is child sacrifice. In the ancient Near East, uh, in biblical times, the people of, uh, well, the surrounding peoples, the Canaanites, would offer their babies to Molech, the, the idol Molech. They would pass their children through the fire and sacrifice their children to that God. And God's own people adopted this practice themselves. If you turn back with me to Psalm 106, uh, you'll see just one example of, of the Lord addressing this. And if, if you're in the habit of reading through all of Scripture um, regularly, you will see child sacrifice coming up again and again and the Lord's response to it. Um, but I'll just read a, a short extract here. Um, this is Psalm uh, 106, and we'll read from verse 34. Uh, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and adopted their customs. They worshipped their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons. Remember how Paul says that an idol is nothing in the world, but it's demons. That's what's really going on. Behind an idol, there is a demon. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed the idols of Canaan, and the land was desecrated by their blood. They defiled themselves by what they did. By their deeds, they prostituted themselves. Therefore, the Lord was angry with his people and abhorred his inheritance. That's strong language, isn't it? This caused him to abhor his inheritance. Elsewhere, Jeremiah 7.31, for example, the Lord says that um, it never even entered into his mind that his people would do this. It's almost as if this is unthinkable to God. It was unimaginable that God's own people would do this. 
Now, child sacrifice is taking place inside the church today in the UK. It's not just a problem out there, but it's happening inside the church. And uh, it's clear, for example, from Leviticus chapter 20, verses 1 to 5, it's not just child sacrifice, it's not just committing child sacrifice that's a sin, but it's also tolerating child sacrifice. In Leviticus 20, it explains that if there's someone else in the community committing child sacrifice, there's an obligation to intervene, to step in and do something, because a child is still being sacrificed, whether it's your child or someone else's. There's an obligation to intervene, and I think we're quite comfortable and, and familiar with that concept when it comes to other forms of child abuse. You know, it's a safeguarding responsibility, isn't it? If something's going on, we report it, we take action, and it's not just the abuser that's held accountable, but also those who knew and did nothing. And yet child sacrifice is happening in the church. At the very least, we ought to consider it a, a safeguarding crisis. But it's a spiritual crisis. And yet it would seem that with many, perhaps most, churches, it seems as though almost anything is deemed more important than dealing with this grave spiritual crisis that is child sacrifice in the church. Ezekiel 20 you can read the elders of Israel come to inquire of the Lord at verse 31. He says, I won't let you inquire of me so long as you continue to offer your children in the fire. Why would I let you inquire of me? I wonder if the Lord can hear our prayers to um, heal our land if we won't repent and humble ourselves and turn from our wicked ways. Will he bring revival if we're still clinging on to or tolerating child sacrifice. Well, this brings us on to the final big question, which is, well, what then should we do? What are we called to do in the face of this? What must I do for my neighbor? The priest and the Levite in our passage, they saw the man, didn't they? They saw the problem. And I have absolutely no doubt they would have felt pity. They wouldn't feel happy looking at this poor fellow lying in the dust. And I'm also quite sure that they were anti-robbery, in their beliefs and in their own personal conduct. I'm sure they never would have robbed someone themselves in that way, never would have beaten someone up. They're very anti-robbery. But of course, was any of that of any use to the man lying there, half dead on the road to Jericho? Only one man in Jesus's parable didn't just feel pity, he showed pity. He took pity, he did something. He took the man and, and clothed him and put him on his donkey, took him to an inn, paid money out of his own purse. It's as if he said to the man, your wounds are my wounds. Your cause is my cause. Your plight is my plight. Your bill is my bill. This is what I think the Lord Jesus means when he talks about loving your neighbor as yourself. It's as if it happened to me. Scripture, Old Testament and New, is full of our proactive obligations to defend the defenseless, to plead the cause of the fatherless, to look after the orphan and the widow. Perhaps most pertinently, in this instance, we think of Proverbs 31 verse 8, be a voice for the voiceless. There is no victim in the history of humanity so literally voiceless as the unborn child. They literally cannot speak for themselves. And so it's left to you and me 
because there is no one else. I want to turn you back to Proverbs uh, chapter 24, if I may, because we see a similar command here, but it comes with something of a barb attached. Um, Proverbs 24, uh, verses 10 to 12. If you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who weighs the heart, sorry, does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay each person according to what he has done? So the Lord is watching, and he knows our hearts. He knows that we know, and we will be held accountable. Perhaps you've heard um, the mantra, my body, my choice. This declaration of, of autonomy. It's up to me. I make my own decisions, and often applied to the issue of abortion. My body, my choice. What is the Christ-like response in a culture like that? Well, I want to suggest to you that it's my body, my choice. The Lord Jesus said, this is my body, broken for you. This is my choice. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. The culture of abortion makes sacrifices, the sacrifice of others for the sake of self. The gospel is the very opposite of that, isn't it? The sacrifice of self for the sake of others. Our forgiveness, our salvation was wrought on the altar of sacrifice, the voluntary self-sacrifice of God the Son. But it's not only our forgiveness that was purchased there, but also our, an example was left for us to follow. Ephesians chapter 5 um, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Or, or Romans chapter 12, again, the beginning of. Be imitators, uh, sorry, um, therefore, my brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do you see? There's an opportunity here in Christ to do something fragrant to God, to put our bodies where our mouths are, to lay our own lives down, to be living sacrifices. The culture of abortion makes sacrifices, the sacrifice of others for the sake of self. The question is, will we, as Christ followers, make sacrifices, the sacrifice of self, for the sake of others? And so I wonder what it is you might be prepared to sacrifice what is it you might be willing to give up? How much is a life worth to you? I want to close with a, uh, just a brief reflection on Sophie and Hans Scholl. Perhaps you know them. Sophie and Hans Scholl were Christians living in Nazi Germany. Well-to-do, white, educated Christians. And Hans had actually been part of the Hitler Youth Program. He, he um, went to university, though, and studied medicine at the University of Munich, and he became disillusioned with the Nazi regime, to the point where he and his sister and others helped to form something called the White Rose Movement, a resistance 
movement. They bought a typewriter and they started producing leaflets exposing the horrors of the Holocaust because, believe it or not, there were people living in Germany not too far away from these concentration camps who did not really know what was going on. Or perhaps they knew something, but they didn't want to know any more. And so these leaflets exposed the horrors of this Holocaust, this genocide, and they made the case on behalf of the victims using biblical and philosophical arguments. When it came to the sixth leaflet that they produced, so great was the burden on their hearts that they decided to take their lives into their hands. They packed suitcases full of these leaflets and brought them into the university itself. And when all the students were in their lectures, they laid these leaflets about the place for the students to find when they came out of class. Now, as they were laying the last leaflets, they were spotted by the caretaker, a man called Jacob Schmidt. And he reported them, and the Gestapo arrested them, and they uh, were brutally interrogated for three days, to the point where Sophie, when she appeared in court, uh, already had a broken leg. Now, they offered Sophie a reduced sentence if she would just deny her involvement in the plot, but she refused to. And she insisted that she be given the same sentence as her brother. And on February the 22nd, 1943, both of them were sentenced to death, given just a few minutes to say goodbye to their parents. Now, amongst Sophie's last known words were these. How can we expect righteousness to prevail when there is hardly anyone to be found who is willing to give himself up individually to a righteous cause. Such a fine sunny day and I have to go, but what does my death matter if through us thousands are awakened and stirred to action? Well, perhaps you, you're, you're in the category of, well, I'm, I'm awakened, I'm stirred to action, but what do I do? How do I do it? Well, there's not much time for me to go into that now. Into the details, effective social reform strategy, how to make the case for life, but this is some of what we, we help people to, to get equipped on. How do we tackle a systemic injustice like this? How do we make the case for life graciously and effectively? Can I just commend to you um, our website, cbruk.org slash join. Okay, that's where you can join the movement. If you just sign up there, you'll get access to all our free training videos. You can join monthly Zoom calls, get connected to other budding activists in your area. Uh, we just did a display, a public education display in Glasgow yesterday. We had a terrific time. Uh, we had dozens of great conversations with people on the streets. And um, God willing, there may well be a, a team rising up in Glasgow that you could maybe get involved with. We'd love to see one here as well. But if you go to cbrek.org join, that's the pathway to get involved and to get more information. We're all about equipping the people of God to do this work. The other thing I want to just commend to you as I close as a next step is, would you perhaps consider a prayer meeting specifically for this issue. It could be a regular thing. It could be, I don't know, once a month. Even if it's just two or three people praying specifically into this issue. And uh, you can supplement your prayers with some of our uh, teaching videos, if you wish, which can be found at breathos.org slash train. There's a kind of package there of videos to, to support a small group within a church. Breathos.org slash train. Um, and I've got some feedback forms at the back. If you want to stay in touch, you can... Fill those out and we'll be in touch. Let me just close by reminding us of um, Sophie's last words. How can righteousness prevail, she said, 
when so few can be found, when hardly anyone can be found, who will give himself up individually to a righteous cause. Well, Jesus said at the end of our passage, verse 37, go and do likewise. Amen.